First Thessalonians chapter 4, last week we went down as far as verse 12. Uh, this morning we'll pick up there in the 13th verse, and we're going to make our way through the remainder of the chapter. So if you're turned to First Thessalonians 4 as we do, would you stand with me out of respect for the Word of God as I read our portion of Scripture this morning? Paul says in verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel and with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And Father, we humbly just pause again to ask now for the just special assistance and aid of your Holy Spirit to understand what your Spirit has inspired and authored in this book for us. Lord, we believe there's no better place to understand what is written here than to look to your Spirit as the very author of it, to give us understanding and clarity of every thought and intent behind your heart as you inspired these things for our understanding and for our instruction. So, Lord, as always this morning, give us an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church. Lord, we've come. You said when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. So do that now through your Word, Lord. Meet us in your Word. Minister to us. Speak to us. Bless your Word to our hearts and help us to anticipate what you're about to say to us through it. And we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it is often the case that uncertainty about the future tends to be a cause of stress and a lot of times incredible anxiety for many people. Well, this morning's passage, as you can tell by reading through it together, is intended specifically to comfort us. In fact, verse 18 even tells us, having understood it, we should actually use these very words in this particular section to actually bring comfort to other people. This text is intended to comfort us by the assurance of what we can expect after the death process. This very passage is intended to comfort us regarding the assurance of the coming of Jesus to get us out of this world, which many times causes us a lot of the stress and anxiety and difficulty that it does. You notice with me again back in verse 13, as Paul opens now this section, he declares this, verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, he says, brethren. Now, Paul begins or sort of opens this section by addressing a subject he's telling us that he wanted to make sure that we as believers were not ignorant about. The idea there of ignorance is that we would not be uninformed. The term that Paul uses there means to be without knowledge or understanding. So this was obviously a particular subject 
that there apparently was some level of confusion about that Paul was aware of. Again, remember Paul planted this church. He taught the word of God to them. He was then separated from them. He has sent Timothy back to them to check on their welfare and their spiritual state. Timothy's come back to bring report to him that the church is doing well, but yet with that also no doubt came an update of what particular things were going on. And so Paul now senses there's some confusion regarding this particular subject and found it particularly important that they would not suffer a lack of knowledge or a lack of understanding regarding this specific area. That's why he opens our section by saying, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant, to be uninformed concerning this particular thing that he's going to talk about. Now, certainly God wants us all to be informed and knowledgeable about every area of his word. God wants us to not lack understanding and information about all of his ways that the word of God gives to us. But it is interesting that we do find the Holy Spirit inspires a few times throughout the scripture, particularly the New Testament, this statement that is made that God does not want us to be ignorant. There's a few occasions where the Holy Spirit specifically says, look, in this matter or this topic, it's really important that we not be ignorant or ill-informed. Four times particularly we find it. If you're a note taker, Romans 11 says that statement that God doesn't want us to be ignorant regarding the nation of Israel and God's plan for the nation of Israel. As 1 Corinthians chapter 12 gives us another occasion, there it says that we would not be ignorant regarding the operation of spiritual gifts and how the ministry of the Spirit is supposed to work among Christians' lives and the gifts operating. Another place is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where there it says that God doesn't want us to be ignorant regarding Satan's devices or the tactics of the devil who tries to ensnare us and trip us up. And one other place we find here in our text this morning that God does not want us to be ignorant or uninformed regarding death and the return of his son, Jesus Christ, that we would have good understanding in this area. So let's look at this, but no doubt that should stamp an emphasis. This is important. So this is a morning where in a passage where the Bible talks about those who are asleep, you don't want to fall asleep, no matter how dry or boring I can get, that you want to pay attention. This is important. This is something God says, please don't be ignorant regarding these things. So Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning, verse 13, here's what it is now. He starts, those who have fallen asleep, lest you would unnecessarily sorrow as others who have no hope. So he wants to clarify their understanding regarding Christians who have died so that we see here, we do not grieve hopelessly as the unsaved world does he wants to enlighten them he says verse 13 look at the text concerning those who have fallen asleep now that term there those who have fallen asleep is a reference to believers or christians who have already died at this point that's what he's referring to when he speaks of those who have fallen asleep later on in the same passage he specifically refers to that exact same group later on in the passage as those who are dead in Christ in comparison to those of us who are still alive and remain right now as Christians. So we find this as a common figure of speech. In fact, you read through the New Testament, even some allusions in the Old Testament where sleep 
is a common figure of speech that the Bible will use to refer to those who have experienced physical death as a believer. Again, if you can picture in your mind, when someone is sleeping, that lasts for a period of time, but then they awaken again. So when someone is therefore asleep, uh, we don't necessarily worry about them when they're asleep because we know that in a set period of time, they're going to wake back up again. So we don't necessarily fret or worry over someone sleeping. So the Bible uses this expression of sleep or being asleep as an expression of a picture of death for the believer. So as it pertains to the physical body, this flesh of a believer, the Bible teaches us that when we die and experience the physical death process, our spirit, our soul, the part of us which is eternal is then released or separated from the physical frame, from the body, and our spirit at the moment of death is released from the body, and therefore the remaining body, the shell of that dead body, it looks like, if you've been to funeral services, does it not? It looks like the person is, is sleeping in a sense. The physical body remains there one day. However, the Bible teaches there's coming a resurrection of that body. When that physical body we once had will be changed and transformed as we receive our resurrection body. Apparently, for the believers in the church at Thessalonica, there was some confusion and concern in their mind for this reason, lacking understanding. They were concerned and worried about fellow Christians who had died, no doubt since the Apostle Paul had been there to give some of these teachings, who had fallen asleep since Paul was with them. Why? Because when Paul was there, he clearly taught them about this return of Christ, this parousia, the coming again of the Lord. And he had taught them, as he shared many things with them as new believers, about the return, the glorious coming of Jesus, and how they should now as Christians be expecting and anticipating the imminent return of the Lord. He had taught them, Jesus is coming back. And so you should be expecting the imminent, quick return of Jesus very soon. At any moment, he could appear to come back and to pick us up as his children. And having already alluded to that, we've seen it a few times, even in this letter, at the end of each chapter, Paul says something regarding the return of the Lord. A case in point, chapter one, he spoke of how these new believers he was sure they were saved because they had repented of a life of sin and idolatry. And Paul said, and you are now waiting for his son to return from heaven. So each chapter, Paul's made allusions to this. So having that understanding, these Christians in Thessalonica, that they are now to wait for the return of Jesus, what had no doubt happened is while they're waiting for this return, Paul has departed. And since that point up to this time, historically, some of the believers, some of the Christians in the church had died. So brother Fred had got sick and he died since Paul's left and the return of Jesus hasn't happened yet, but he died. So what was happening to them and their lack of understanding, it was causing concern that those believers who had died, they had missed out on the return of the Lord. And so there was this concern that now they're not going to get to take part in this glorious coming again of Jesus that Paul told us to wait for. And in some senses, they felt the living believers as if the dead believers had somehow lost out on something. They had missed something. They had, in a sense, actually became sorrowful for them because they thought, man, they got shortchanged. 
They died before Jesus came back. And now they're not going to get to experience this glorious, triumphant return of the Lord. So Paul wants to show them, we can see here, that sorrow for, sorrow for these dead Christians, as if they lost something, was really not necessary. He's going to talk about this more particularly in the verses ahead. But notice his reasoning we get in verse 13 here was that believers who are still alive, he says, would not therefore sorrow or grieve for those who had died already in the same manner that unbelievers grieve when someone dies, Paul says, who have absolutely no Hope. Now, let me just say this. The Bible does not teach that when a believer dies, that there should not be sorrow and grief and remorse. It is totally normal. It is acceptable. In fact, I would go so far to say it is absolutely necessary that we go through a process of grieving and sorrowing when a loved one dies, even as a believer. And that's not unspiritual. Jesus grieved at death. In John chapter 11, the Bible shows others doing the same. Even as believers, when we go through the death process, even of a loved one, nonetheless, we will grieve. We will experience sorrow. Yet that sorrow is not for them. We're not grieving for them as if somehow they've lost something because the Bible says to depart and be with Christ is far better. So they're experiencing something far better. They haven't lost, they've gained. They're experiencing the glorious presence of Jesus. They're in the eternal dimension in heaven. They're free from pain and suffering and the hardships of this world. So our grief and sorrow really is over losing them from our lives. So in a sense, it's somewhat of a a human selfish grief. We're not grieving for them because they've missed something or they're missing out on something. We're grieving, in a sense, from the reality of we're grieving having lost them from our lives. So our grief is for ourselves, in a sense. It's that this person who was so precious and important to us, we're not enjoying their presence anymore. We can't see them face to face. We can't hug them and spend time with them. There's been this separation through the death process. So we grieve because they've been taken from our lives. Now, when the unsaved experience the death process of people... It's an utterly hopeless feeling because they lack the understanding of spiritual and eternal realities. It brings a horrible feeling of utter despair when somebody dies. It's a sense of this is the end of everything. There's nothing left. It's, It's so permanent. There's nothing to find any comfort or hope in. So to grieve and sorrow, would you agree, is hard enough. But to grieve and sorrow with no hope, with no hope? I mean, it's hard enough to go through the death process, even as a Christian. I've walked through it with family members. You've walked through it. I've done you know, numerous funerals and memorial services. And, and, and I say to my, my wife again and again, it doesn't matter how many times I do it, it's never gotten any easier. I mean, you can feel the pain in the air. And I think part of the reason for that is because God never wired us for the death process. It was never part of God's plan. Sin brought death into the picture, but when God created us, he didn't intend for death to be a part of the process. So because of that, there's no death category or file inside this being. So when death 
happens and we walk through death, we go searching inside ourselves for this file, this category, death, death. Where is it at in there? How do you deal with death? And that's why it's so strange to us. Certainly with the hope of Christ, there's some help to find comfort in a different way and perspective. And boy, I've watched Maybe you've experienced before you're a Christian or you've seen it is such a different thing when the unsaved world experiences the death process. It is so hopeless for them. It is so despairing. Yet among Christians, when there's death, we sorrow and grieve emotionally with the pain, but we can and should grieve with a sense of hope in the midst of it. There's a blessed difference in a gift. We understand spiritual and eternal realities. We understand the, the certainty of a coming day When Jesus is going to return again, we understand the realities of assurance of a future reunion. So in a sense that when a loved one who knows Jesus dies, we understand it's not really goodbye. It's see you soon. It's see you soon. It's not this permanent sense of goodbye. Again, it's uh, a faint illustration, but one that's fresh in my mind. It's like when my oldest daughter just departed for college recently. When she departed from college, there was a grief regarding her departure and the absence of her presence. And I was the weakest link. I'll admit that. It was bad. It was really bad. And she wasn't even going to California. She was only going somewhere in Pennsylvania. But when she departed, there was a grief over there was going to be a separation of her presence But it wasn't a grief in a sense that I'll never see her again. There was grief and sorrow in the separation of her presence, but a grief with the understanding, I'll see you again soon. And it's the same for the believer. There's that grief of the separation of presence, but the hope and the assurance that that we will see again because of the understandings that we have. So Paul's going to explain now in our verses why there's no need to be overly concerned of those who have died as believers already and that as if specifically they're going to miss out on something as it pertains to this glorious coming again of Christ. Paul's going to talk about that. He says, verse 14, going on, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him, notice, those who sleep, there's our term again, those who sleep in Jesus, those who have died already in Christ. So notice, since Jesus' death and resurrection back from the dead has happened in his life and he's accomplished victory over sin and death for all then who believe the Bible's telling us Jesus will also bring together with him those believers who have already died when he comes to gather the rest of living believers still dwelling on the earth. He says, therefore, the term really probably should be verse 14, more like since, since we believe Jesus died and rose again back from the death. Notice, that's the basis, that's the assurance of these very things of our own experience of what's going to happen after our physical death. What Jesus has accomplished already. Jesus in the body of a man lived sinlessly and then substitutionally died in our place as he sacrificed upon the cross and he died for the punishment of our sins taking the punishment for us so that we could be forgiven and then he victoriously rose back from the dead from the physical death process accomplishing victory over the death process Paul talks about it this way, 1 Corinthians 15. Notice the similar language again. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first 
fruits, the, the first in a sense springing forth of a new type of those who have fallen asleep, Paul says. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so now in Christ all shall be made alive. So it's what Jesus has accomplished for us, that victorious experience, defeating sin, overcoming the death process that the Bible says that's what offers us now the same through Jesus. Because if your life is one with him and Christ's spirit dwells within you, since we believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, we can experience the same victory over the death process ourselves in our life. And notice verse 14 tells us this, that God's plan is then for Jesus to bring, it says, with him. You see what verse 14 says there? Look at it. He says that Jesus, when he comes, he is going to bring with him those who sleep or who have already died in Jesus. Now, in order for that to happen, for Jesus to bring with him those who have already died, that indicates that believers who have physically died are currently still alive spiritually. They're alive spiritually and they're living together now with Jesus. That's what the scripture teaches. One passage that clearly emphasizes that of many, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, where the Bible declares that in the physical death process, the spirit or soul of the believer instantly, as we said, departs from the body and enters into the presence of the Lord. Paul there says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's not to go somewhere else temporarily and be in limbo. It says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord instantaneously, to enter into his presence. Paul said to the Philippians chapter 1, verse 22 to 24, but if I live on in the flesh, this will remain, mean fruit for my labor, yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. Paul says there's a part of me that wants to keep living. There's also a part of me that really wouldn't be upset about dying. Anybody know that feeling? He says, I'm hard pressed. Having a desire, he says, listen, to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He says, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. In other words, Paul realized I, there's more that I still need to do now. And though I'd selfishly love to depart and go be with Jesus, that'd be way better. I realize that love and sacrifice, that there's a reason still that I need to be on this earth because other people need what I can supply as a representative of Christ still. But notice again, the language to depart from life, Paul says, is to be with Christ, which will be far better. So this is a blessed assurance of the believer at the death experience that we just live on now in that eternal realm. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 11. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So it's just a transition from life in the physical to life in the eternal. At the coming of the Lord, God has determined, verse 14 says, that believers who have already graduated through their death process now become, if you would, they share in the welcome home ceremony. For all the believers, you and I, who may still be alive and remaining on the earth at this catching away of Jesus at his return as he draws us up to meet the Lord. Paul says, verse 15, going on, for this we say to you, notice he wants to emphasize, by the word of the Lord. 
Paul's trying to emphasize there the, that this is a direct word from Jesus, that this is something maybe was a divine revelation, but Paul wants to emphasize, hey, this is the word of the Lord. This is a, a divine authoritative thing. He goes on to say that we, verse 15, who are alive and remain on the earth until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So that term there, the coming of the Lord, is where we get that Greek word, the parousia. Uh, it shows up all throughout the New Testament. That term parousia, the Greek uses for the coming of the Lord, it's a term that speaks of arrival and it's a term that speaks of presence. Uh, it, it describes the Bible when it talks about the coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus. It's talking about a glorious arrival of Jesus himself coming back from heaven again and stepping back into our present earthly realm, encountering the awesome presence of Jesus and literally being in his midst, having his presence arrive and show up. That's why Titus says to us as Christians, chapter 2, that we're to be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what we're waiting for as Christians. We're, we're looking for this blessed hope where Jesus is going to come, his presence. There's going to be a arrival of Christ as he steps back into this realm to interrupt human history. And at the coming of the Lord, we see here in verse 15 that certain believers, very possibly you and I, will still be alive and have remained on the earth until that unknown glorious day. But he says here that we who are alive and remain will by no means precede, he says, those who are asleep, that is, believers who've already died. Now, that word precede there speaks of to not come before. It means to not be ahead of in order or to get to experience first. What the Bible is saying is that living believers are not going to come into the blessings associated with the return of Christ in a way, in preferred order of those who have already died and gone to be with Jesus. Again, remember, this was the concern of the, of the Thessalonians. Oh, man, they're going to miss out on the return of Jesus. This glorious event that Paul told us about that's going to be so awesome when Jesus comes back and returns once again. Oh, man, they're, they're going to miss out. And Paul's trying to say, look, we're not going to precede those who've already gone to be with the Lord. The idea is he's trying to say is there's no special advantage that we're going to get having been alive at the return of Jesus in this sense. The reason is we're going to share in this glorious event together as a family reunion. That's why he's talking, look, Jesus is bringing them with him and it's going to happen simultaneously. They come back with him and we blast off the planet and he says that this is going to be a shared experience. And verse 16 and 17, he then gives us a little explanation describing this event of the coming of the Lord Jesus for his church, we often refer to it, and we'll talk more about it in a moment, as the rapture, the catching away of the saints to go and meet the Lord in the air. Now, before we look at verse 16 and 17 here, let me just read them to you. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, a reference to their bodies we'll talk about. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So he's describing the events of this 
rapture or this catching away of the saints up into heaven. And again, before we unpack statement by statement, I want to begin with just a few general comments describing you know, uh, eschatology and end times events. This event that the Bible is describing here is not the same thing or the same event as the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ refers to an event that happens at the end of the seven-year period of tribulation that the Bible describes to us when Jesus returns at that point as a glorified king, as, as a, a holy warrior to overthrow the Antichrist and all the ungodly armies on the earth that are opposed to him. It's during that event that all believers, you and I and everyone who's already been deceased before us in Christ, that all believers on glorious horses, as well, like a holy army with the Lord, will return together with him, coming back through the sky as he overthrows the Antichrist and Jesus will actually, the Bible says in Zechariah, touch down his feet upon the earth on the Mount of Olives. It will split in two and Jesus will go up into Jerusalem and actually establish his throne to reign upon the earth. Then for a thousand years, often referred to as the millennium or the kingdom age, and you and I will then rule and reign with him as co-heirs together with Christ during the kingdom age. So the second coming of Christ, important to understand, is an instance and an event that all believers return with Christ during coming back from heaven at the end of the tribulation period to set up his kingdom on this earth and to reign on the earth for a thousand years. This event we're reading of here, 1 Thessalonians 4, particularly verse 16 and 17, is describing an event, as I said, often referred to as the rapture, that happens prior to that seven-year period of tribulation, where we read here that Jesus first comes on the front side of the tribulation period with a portion of his saints, a portion of them, who have already died and gone to be with Jesus to then come back with a portion of his saints to draw out or catch away the rest of his saints, the rest of his family who are still waiting upon the earth that we might be drawn out to go and be with Jesus. You notice the difference again when you compare passages in this experience, Jesus's feet never touch the earth. He's in the air. He never comes down to earth literally as the second coming describes in scripture. He simply calls us out from up in the clouds and we go and meet with the Lord in the airs. We're supernaturally removed from the planet and Jesus catches us away to meet with him. The purpose of this event is to bring us home with the rest of the family of God. And it's Jesus lovingly, because he already bore the wrath of God. We're going to see next chapter where he says that we as Christians weren't appointed to wrath. We're not appointed to wrath because we believe Jesus suffered our wrath already for us. So therefore, this is Jesus safely removing those who have faith in him to get us out of the way first before the wrath of the Lamb comes upon this planet and the rest of the Christ-rejecting world during that seven-year period of tribulation. In the same way, remember, that lot had to be removed before the judgment of God fell in the book of Genesis. And the angels even told Lot, look, until you get out of here, the judgment can't come. 
You've got to get out of here. And it's a picture of how in the same way, you and I as believers, Jesus is going to radically remove us, catch us away, snatch us off this planet to go and be in his presence while the wrath of the Lamb is being poured out upon this earth as Revelation describes for that seven-year period. This is an event that no man knows the day or the hour of. It's an event, the rapture of the church, that the Bible tells us that we are to be ready for it, where Christians will be snatched away, and it will bring then the onset of this seven-year period of tribulation and the worst years humanity has ever known. That is why Jesus made statements like this, where he said, Watch, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. Jesus said, Be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, I don't know about you, but as I look at our world deteriorating, 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 there's a part of me that I keep expecting it more and more and more. I'm thinking it can't be much longer because after a while, it ain't going to be a surprise no more. It's like, I mean, I'm expecting it. I mean, we, I'm ready. I mean, I got my jump shoes on, Lord, whatever. I mean, how can I not expect it anymore? Look at the world. But Jesus says that this is something that we are to be ready, that no man knows the day or the hour. It's an instantaneous event where the Bible says that all true believers will be snatched off the planet in an instant to go and be with the Lord and it will happen by total surprise. That's why as believers, we are called in light of this to live ready, to be ready. And this morning... Good to ask ourselves, does your current life and the way you're living out your faith in Christ indicate that you're ready for an instantaneous departure at any hour? Look at your life. Look at the state of the church. Look at the condition of most Christians spiritually. Do we seem like a people that are living, believing that at any hour, it's done? It's done. Any hour before the close of this service out of here do we do we live that way that's that's convicting to me that's challenging to think about that and this morning if you're not truly saved there is no time to waste the bible is saying oh i'm gonna put i want to sow my oats for a while i want to do this a little bit look the, the bible says you need to get ready or you will be left behind you can be left behind and you oh, I'm just, that's fine, I'll try and get saved during the tribulation. I heard the Bible says you can get saved during the tribulation. My response to that is always this. If you can't live for Christ now, in this life, in this world, do you really think you're going to die for Christ in the tribulation? Because that's what it's going to take. If you don't have the courage to live for Jesus now, I wouldn't bank on, well, I'll just get saved during the tribulation. If you can't live for him now, I'm... Highly concerned that you're not going to be able to die for him in the midst of the tribulation period when there is satanic experience in a way like never before experienced on this planet. So it's important to be ready. Well, let's look at these verses here, 16 and 17, kind of unpacking what the scripture says to kind of describe this event. Verse 16 begins to describe it saying, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. So notice, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Here's one thing we see. It indicates, and don't overlook this, that Jesus is coming personally. The Lord himself is going to descend from heaven to take us home. He doesn't send a high-ranking angelic representative with a really swank heavenly limo to come pick you up and to bring you home. Now, 
People do that all the time, right? You know, airports, you're coming home, somebody they're really important, they're a busy person, they don't have time to come pick you up themselves, but they'll send you a nice limo or they'll send you a great, you know, and, and, and people who are busy and important, but look, n- not Jesus. Jesus comes himself. Jesus comes himself to pick us up and to bring us home. He's a servant king. He comes himself. He descends out of heaven to pick us up himself, to bring us back to heaven and to the Father in order to personally greet us. I mean, I look at that. That testifies to me. I can't overlook that of the reality of the incredible love of Jesus. The servant-hearted attitude of Jesus. I mean, look at this is the king of kings. This is the king of kings. And yet he himself, so great, so important, is so intimate and so caring that the Lord himself descends to draw us home. Why? Because you're his bride and he can't wait to see you. He can't wait one minute longer. He's not sending the shuttle service. He wants to be there. He can't wait to see you. He can't wait to bring you home. John 17, 24 says this, that Jesus prayed, listen to Jesus' words, Father, I desire that they also who you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory that you have given to me. Do you hear the words of Jesus' Father? He's praying, I want those you gave me to be with me where I am. In other words, we often say, oh, I can't wait to see you, Lord. I can't wait to be in your presence. And I think that he says, you have no idea. You have no idea. You think you want to see me? You think that you want to see me? He says, Father, I can't wait to have those you've given me to be with me where I am, to come and be with my presence and be with me forever. He's anxiously lovesick for you and I as his bride. He wants to see us. He's like a picture of this engaged man who's been away from his fiancée and separated for some circumstantial reason and he can't wait one more minute until he sees her face and to come and to pick her up. There's no way he's going to send somebody else because he can't wait to be in your presence. He's desirous to see you. And you know, boy, I, mean, I can totally relate that. My wife's out of town this weekend. My family's out of town this weekend. It's only been since Friday. I was a mess by Friday evening. I just, I love her. I want to be in her presence. I will be pacing around the house unnecessarily cleaning things that I don't normally clean this afternoon wanting her to get home because she's my bride. I hate being separated from her. There's something about being in her presence. There's something about on top of being in her presence you know, just the sense of she's with me. She's safe. I can protect her. I, I can keep an eye on her. And if that's me as an evil man, what is the case of Jesus wanting to have us escape the hardships of this life, to get us out of it, to have us to be with him? You know, John 14, verse 2 and 3, Jesus said these words. Listen to the heart of Jesus. He said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. See, another reason why Jesus himself is descending from heaven to get us is because Jesus keeps his promises. Jesus keeps his promises. You know, I apologize if you're here this morning and maybe you had a parent who said, I'm going to come pick you up, and they never showed up. Well, they said, I'm going to do this for you, and they never kept their promise. Jesus is coming back because Jesus said, I'll come back and get you again. And when Jesus promises something, Jesus keeps his word. So Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place. I'll be back to get you. 
No question. Jesus is coming back to get us. He's going to come pick us up because he's more excited about the digs he's been creating in heaven for you than you possibly could ever be. He can't wait for you to see it. He can't wait for you to experience it. So it says he's going to come, verse 16, notice, with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the text goes on, and with the trumpet of God. Now that clearly indicates there's going to be some powerful sound involved in this experience, which notifies believers that we are being called out of this world unto Jesus. What exactly this sound is going to be like? I'll be the first to tell you I'm not 100% certain. We get a little bit of description here. I don't want to over-speculate on the specifics of what it's going to sound like and what that means. However, look, don't worry. It's not as if you're going to miss it if you don't know what the sound is. What was it? That's not going to be the case. That's not going to be the case at all. I assure you, it says here, it's going to be loud, evident, and obvious, and we're going to be snatched away regardless. So if you're deaf, tone deaf, don't worry about it. Your ear's going to hear it. There's going to be some loud sound notice with a shout. That indicates loud, shout, loud. The Greek is an urgent command from an authoritative person. He refers to it as the voice of an archangel. That was the highest ranking of the angels, which indicates authority or authoritative. He says with the trumpet of God. Trumpets were used in ancient history to summon attention and to gather people together. So the Bible's saying this powerful event will include a loud, authoritative urgent sound to summon and call us together to go be with Jesus and it's the very authoritative command and sound that causes it to happen and causes us by Jesus' command to be drawn off the planet and to be in the presence of the Lord I have to say I can only imagine what is it, what's actually going to be said I, I, I mean I, I pondered that I mean, what, I, mean what, 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 I can't help but to speculate there's a part of me that wonders if it's going to be something like enough. Come home. Enough. Come home. Be with me and be with my Father. And at that moment when Jesus descends and that shout goes forth, the next thing we read in verse 16, it says, at that point, the dead in Christ will rise first. Now that speaks of the resurrection of the bodies of deceased believers as we talked about remember these believers are already in the presence of the Lord so what this is describing here remember they're descending with Jesus as this event happens but it's during this event of the rapture of you and I off the planet that they now receive their glorified eternal resurrection bodies as their body is transformed and changed and they receive that permanent resurrection body now that leads some to ask rightfully so well wait a minute if this is when Christians who've already died and gone to heaven receive their glorified resurrection body, and of course we have to think through things, you know, we're Christians, then what's their current existence right now in heaven with Jesus? And there are some who speculate that maybe they have a temporary eternal body until this event when they receive their permanent resurrected glorified body there are some who believe that maybe those who've gone to be with Jesus are there somewhat like a disembodied spirit temporarily like in the form of an angel where they don't have a physical frame in that sense yet either way let me resolve this for you so you don't overthink it two things I can tell you that we do know they're in the presence of Jesus and they're not disappointed because to be with Christ is far better so we can ask that for all of eternity and figure out how it happened. 
So the dead in Christ, their bodies, will be transformed in this moment, receiving their resurrection body. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, who've come back with Jesus, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So notice, all living believers will be caught up at this moment, it says, to meet with them, other believers, and to meet the Lord in the air. Again, I can't help but to wonder if probably maybe the reason Jesus brings back the saints who've already gone before us is that we're heading up to meet the Lord. They're probably there giving us high fives and, you know, hugs. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Go see Jesus, you know. And, and they're there as this welcoming party is where it says here, verse 17, caught up. And that's a Greek term there used, harpazo. And the term that the Bible uses refers to an instantaneous, forceful snatching away. That's the term the Bible uses for caught up. An instantaneous, forceful snatching away. It's an event that will happen so quickly, so miraculously, so forcefully. Believers will be snatched off the planet in an instant. The Bible says faster than the twinkling of an eye. In other words, if you could blink super fast, you'd still miss it. That's how fast it's going to transpire. The Greek term that's trans translated from harpazo, the catching away there, the Greek term that's used when translated in the Latin Vulgate, which, if you're not familiar, was a main Bible translation for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Latin of that term was translated, that word, raptoros, which is where we get our English word rapture, which is why we often refer to this by that term. So people are going to say to you, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Right. That's where the term comes from. It comes from the Latin Vulgate used harpazo that translated it into rapturos, which we took the English word rapture, and so we call it by that name. You want to call it catching away the saints? I don't care. I'm getting out of here anyway. <laughs> and call it what you want. And this is the moment, notice also, the Bible tells us at this time, when we will be transformed and will receive glorified bodies as well. Again, 1 Corinthians 15 describes how this mortal will put on immortality, this corruption will put on incorruption. Philippians 3 describes how our bodies will be conformed into the glorious resurrection body just like Jesus has. And boy, for some of us this morning, how awesome that experience and enjoyment is going to be to get a glorified resurrection body, to have that new body. You know, yesterday, my uh, daughter had a homecoming up at her college. We w went up to, to visit her for the day there. Um, and uh, part of the things, they had, they had this uh, mechanical bull. And, you know, I'm watching these college students on these mechanical bull doing this. And you know how, like, after... I've noticed after you cross 40, you kind of survey something before you do it first. You know, you kind of go, could I still? You know, I've never done it before. And, uh, you know, I, let me just say, I'm under the influence of Motrin this morning. I assure you of that. And, and you're like, man, you know, the body just starts. And for some of us, you know, the sickness, the struggle, some of you live in chronic pain. The failing body, the sick body, and we're going to get glorified bodies, new bodies free from sickness, free from suffering and pain physically. Our minds, our psyche, the scarred things inside of you that are fractured because of what's happened to you, it's going to be made whole. It's going to be healed. And boy, if that weren't enough, notice verse 16. This is what excites me. It says, it says we're going to meet the Lord. 
We're going to get to meet Jesus and always be with Jesus, meaning we'll never be separated from Jesus again, like we are now. I mean, what is that going to be like? Take a walk with that this afternoon. You're going to get to meet the Lord. You're going to get to be in His presence. No, you're never going to have to depart again. You're going to be with Him forever. That's why Paul says here, verse 18, Therefore, comfort one another, look what he says, with these words. These very truths give us hope and assurance, he says, that should be used now as Christians, these words, to comfort one another during our struggles as we still remain here on this earth. See, as we work through, all of us, grief and sorrow over missing a loved one who knew Jesus but yet has died and they've departed from us now, maybe a relative, a parent, a sibling, a spouse, you know, a, a, a child. My wife and I lost our first child. And, and to, to be able to realize that we can find comfort in knowing they are with Jesus. And that more than that, verse 17 says, we will be with them at some point. That is that there is this assurance of a reunion that's guaranteed. And there are going to be bodies to use to hug and eyes to look into somebody's face again and the ability to talk and to speak with them and to realize that that's an assurance that's part of the benefit package. That there's this reunion that we have even as we get to meet the Lord and as we suffer in earthly bodies and watch others suffer. There's comfort in knowing, hey, one day we're going to get released from this physical frame. The sickness, the struggling, the failing tent. We're going to have healthy, glorified bodies. As you struggle in this life with various hardships while you're still on this planet, some of you personal struggles and relationship heartaches, and struggles with sin and this world's chaos, you can find comfort in knowing at any given moment, any given moment, you keep going each hour, each at any given moment, that next hour you may be released from all this. You may be set free from it and be in the presence of Jesus forever and ever. And this morning I would be amiss to not say if you are here and you are not saved, this should discomfort you. Because you're not ready. And there's not time to waste. It's important to get ready lest you be left behind. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Let's have our musicians lead us in a closing song of worship this morning. Father, we thank you for these things. Lord, these truths, this passage of Scripture. Lord, thank you for giving it to us that we can be instructed, that, Lord, from it we can find hope, Lord, that from it we can receive comfort. And Lord, may these words continue to comfort us. And may we as Christians, Lord, among each other, still on this planet remaining, use these words to comfort one another at different times when we need to. Lord, we thank you for these things and we rejoice now in your presence in the song of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.